Greetings, everyone. As you know, we're approaching Easter. I refreshed my memory by turning to the Catholic Encyclopedia this morning and copied a few excerpts for you from the article Easter in the Catholic Encyclopedia, Volume 5, page 224. Easter, the English term, according to the Venerable Bede, who wrote De Temporum Rationale, relates to Easter, O-E-S-T-R-E, a Teutonic goddess of the rising light of day and spring. Now, the rising light is, of course, the sun, and spring having to do with the vernal equinox and the onset of the growing things. And it is a Teutonic goddess, you'll notice, and that's northern Germany and the area of the lowlands of Holland and Belgium and that area of the world, not over in the Middle East, although she has roots in the Middle East, in Egypt and ancient Babylon. That the Apostolic Fathers do not mention it, pause for comment, Apostolic Fathers, the name meaning Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Peter, Paul, James, and so on, and that we, we Catholics, first hear of it principally through the controversy of the Quarto Decimans are purely accidental. You all know Quarto Decimans, I think. You've heard that time and again. It merely means 14th. And the name Quarto Deciman meant 14thers, or those who insisted on observing the Passover on the 14th of Nisan, or the 14th of Abib. And thus they were called for many centuries, and it wasn't stamped out of the church until the 11th century at the Council of Whitby in 664 in England. There were still those who believed in the Quarto Deciman, so-called theory, of the Passover on the 14th of Nisan. The connection between the Jewish Passover and the Christian Feast of Easter is real and ideal. Now, that's nonsense, but that's what the Catholic Encyclopedia says. Real since Christ died on the first Jewish Easter day. That is a blatant, deliberate, utterly false statement. Never in the history of the Jewish race have the Jewish people had an Easter day. For anyone to say a Jewish Easter day is like saying the Pope's Baptist Church. It doesn't make sense. Ideal, like the relation between the type and reality, because Christ's death and resurrection had its figures and types in the old law. Interesting words, old law, not the law, but the old law, particularly in the paschal lamb, which was eaten towards evening on the 14th of Nisan. True? No. It was slain, and then it was eaten on the feast. The feast was the 15th after that sunset, and they ate with the staff in their hand and their shoes in their feet and their kneading troughs bound up in their clothing, and they ate in haste because it was the night of the passing over of the death angel. The First Council of Nicaea, 325, most of you know that, you know that date, decreed that the Roman practice should be observed throughout the church because by that time, with a gradual rise of bishops and then metropolitans, as they were called, in larger cities, and eventually five great patriarchs, and then eventually, through a combination of attrition, death, warfare, 
and squabbling and fighting among them, there only remained two great patriarchs, one in Constantinople and one in Rome. And they were busily, for a period of time, excommunicating each other. But eventually there remained only the one great patriarch who was called the bishop at Rome. And by the time of Constantine and the calling together of all the squabbling bishops from Alexandria, Antioch, and Pisidia in Syria, and from all the various cities around the Peloponnesus of Greece and in Rome itself and down in Carthage, they decided to settle all the controversies that were raging throughout the church over all sorts of things. Some insisted that there was God the Father and Christ the Son. Others insisted that God was in free, quote, persons, end quote, but they didn't want to go so far as to say that he was person or persons, and so they came up with a completely different Greek phrase, which means three in one, one in three, and has never really truly been deciphered to people's understanding to this day. Actually, the decision involving Easter was perhaps secondary or tertiary to the primary reason for the calling of the Council of Nicaea, which had to do with Arianism and some other things that were coming into the church at that time. The Council of Nicaea decreed that the Roman practice of the Roman Church should be observed throughout the Church. But even at Rome, the Easter term was changed repeatedly. Those who continued to keep Easter with the Jews, deliberately misleading. The Jews never kept Easter. Nobody ever kept Easter with the Jews because the Jews never kept Easter. When they say that, it's absolutely misleading. We're called Quartodecimans, 14 Nisan, and were excluded from the Church for their practice of continuing to observe the Passover, not Easter, the Passover. The word Easter was not known among those people. First, the Teutonic language was never even developed, or they certainly didn't know it. The English language wasn't developed, or they certainly didn't know it. The term Easter was absolutely foreign, unknown to the Jews for centuries prior to and including the time of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and the time of the writing of the New Testament. The term Easter simply was not extant in the Middle East. It's the name of a Teutonic goddess of spring. Now the name Ishtar, Estarte, Ashtaroth, however they might have pronounced it, was well known because it was a pagan name, but not Easter, not the way we spell it today. Under a subtitle, Easter Controversy, Quote, ecclesiastical history preserves the memory of three distinct phases of the dispute regarding the proper time of observing Easter. Deliberately misleading, would you say? The dispute involving the proper time of observing Easter. No. The dispute was over whether to observe the Passover and the Lord's Supper on the 14th or whether to adopt the pagan custom of Ishtar or Easter. It was not the proper time to observe Easter. But it's interesting the way some of these writers put it. The dioceses of all Asia, as from an older tradition, held that on the 14th day of the moon, on which day the Jews were commanded to sacrifice the lamb, should always be observed as the feast of the life-giving Pash. Life-giving? Is that deliberately misleading? Do you see anything about the Lamb that was supposed to be a festival of life-giving? Or wasn't it life-taking and life-sacrificing and the symbol of Christ's death, not a symbol of life-giving? Now, you could lead on to that, that we only have eternal life through the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then perhaps through some sort of 
extrapolation. You could arrive at the idea that there was something to do with life-giving because the death angel would pass over the homes of the Israelites and spare their lives and so on. But that, again, is deliberately misleading. Contending that the fast, the fast, 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 what fast? The fast ought to end on that day. Well, you know what Lent is, don't you? Everybody knows what Lent is. And it's not something we find in our navels, as, as we've said over the years. It's not something that you pick off the sleeve of your, of your jacket or your coat. It is a word which is nowhere in the Bible. It has to do with the Lenten fast. And it all is tied in with an awful lot of events that are taking place in the springtime, not the least of which is what happens in New Orleans, Fat Tuesday. Fat Tuesday, or Mardi Gras, which is what that means, is the last wild bash before the so-called Lenten fast, which leads up to Easter so-called Holy Week or Good Friday. Of course, they have Maundy Thursday and they have Ash Wednesday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday morning and all of these things that go on. And I remember from my boyhood one Catholic friend that gave up for that period of time chewing gum. It's a fast, you see. And there are things that they have to go without during that period of time. They don't just completely cease from eating, but there are certain things that they may knock out of their diet. Some of them may go so far as to not eat until sunset, like the Arabs on Ramadan. Further, Irenaeus states that St. Polycarp, and he would not have ever known himself by that title, but Polycarp was the student of John the Apostle, who, like other Asiatics, now, as you stumble across that term in literature, that invariably means people from the Bosporus Dardanelles eastward. It does not mean Europeans or people of Greece or the area of the Balkans. It merely means people in so-called Asia, and they refer to Palestine and modern-day Turkey. You know that it's Asia Minor in the old maps, of course. But Asiatics, and that again is sort of misleading because it in, in a sense is a put-down. Make, oh well, Asiatics, who wants anything to do with them? Irenaeus states that St. Polycarp, who like the other Asiatics, kept Easter on the 14th day of the moon. Deliberate falsehood. Polycarp never kept Easter, not a day in his life. Whichever day that might be. Following therein the tradition he claimed to have derived from St. John the Apostle. And he, St. Polycarp, came to Rome around A.D. 150 about this very question, A.D. 150, but could not be persuaded by Pope Anicetus to relinquish his quarto deciman observance. Polycarp was, so far as all we can tell by his writings, faithful to the truth that was once delivered to the saints and continued to observe the Passover on the 14th and for his pains got kicked out of the Roman Catholic Church and eventually was martyred. Jesus Christ said, Matthew 12:40. I won't turn to that and read it because I want you to be turning to Matthew 27. We're going to go through the four Gospels right quickly and the statements that are made there by the synoptics, the first three Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then by John, the non-synoptic Gospel, about the events that took place at the time of Christ's death and his burial. But Jesus said that a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign shall be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. 
For as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, or the great fish, as the Bible says, three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Bullinger's Companion Bible, and it is a King James translation, so when I read from it today because of the notes and appendices I have it here in front of me, is a faithful translation from the KJV, or the King James, but he has some very interesting appendices with regard to these events, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Jesus Christ said that a wicked generation seeks after a sign. They're still doing it. Weeping virgins, bleeding so-called crosses and pieces of wood, sweating statuary, a statue with a tear that is supposed to develop in its eye, the alleged appearance of the Virgen de Guadalupe, the idea of a shroud that is supposed to actually have the facial features of the person who was wrapped within it, the famous Shroud of Turin. There are places all over the Catholic world, in Spain and Portugal and down in Mexico. And the other day in the United States down in Florida, some people actually took pictures of what appeared to be the image, appeared to me like a little bit of oil between two layers of glass, but they thought that it was the image of the Virgin Mary. And there were pictures all over the multi, the mass media had pictures all over the United States of this phenomenon, people running down there. And if people can get close to something like that, it's real spooky. If you can get into a cave, if you can go down like a mole in a hole in the ground and find something in a grotto and light a candle and something supposedly happened there many, many centuries ago, then if you can put out your hand and you can touch it, if you can be next to it, have a pendant with a cross on it and hold it up, there's something in the air. When you see people in St. Peter's Square holding up their crucifixes and their rosaries, when the Pope goes by making these signs, whatever they mean, in the Pope Mobile, and people hold them up and they come back and they put them in a little niche and under a perhaps piece of glass, and this was blessed by the Pope. If you go like that at somebody, unless you have water on your fingers, nothing happens. I know that people think that something happens when you go like that at, at people, but unless you have water on your fingers, you don't feel anything and nothing happens. But there are millions of people, and there are people who I believe are Sabbatarians today, who if they could just see a miracle, if they could see something strange, unusual, inexplicable, scientifically impossible to explain, it would be all they would need. I'm going to refer to, you don't need to turn to it if you don't want to, Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, how about walking off of the platform on air and not falling, or creating a ball of fire, or creating an apparition, or something that is really like levitating a table or something of that nature in the room? If it comes to pass, whereof he spake unto you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, if his message is contrary to God's word and God's law. Thou shalt not hearken to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. I get many dreams told in great detail. My mail has lots of dreams in them. And sometimes phone calls have people that have had dreams and had visions and have written all sorts of things. For the eternal your God proves you to know whether you love the eternal your God with all your heart 
and with all your mind, all your soul. So, in other words, if you were to see a great miracle, you don't instantly say, that's got to be of God. It may be something that God is allowing to happen to test and to prove whether or not you will find out, well, yes, I see that the man was able to do that, but does he observe God's law? Will he obey God's Ten Commandments? Will he keep God's Sabbath day? Will he believe what Jesus said, that he would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth? And that prophet, or that dreamer of dreams, shall be put to death, because he has spoken to turn you away from the Eternal your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. So the only sign, it was not one of his miracles. The only sign that Jesus left was not the miracle of the healing of the withered hand. It was not the miracle of the blind seeing or the deaf hearing, or even at the tomb of Lazarus, when a dead man walked out of a tomb after four days, and having been to the point where they said, don't go near the tomb because by this time he won't smell very good. None of those are the perpetual signs that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. In Matthew 27, and verse 55, Many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him. And among them was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, the mother of Zebedee's children. This is not Mary, Jesus' mother. When the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. When even was come, Christ died at approximately, if not exactly, hour 3 p.m. in the afternoon. The sun would set at approximately, not exactly, 6 p.m. There were about three hours remaining for Joseph of Arimathea to do this, along with Nicodemus and some other people, and of course there were several who no doubt helped. So when Joseph had taken the body, it doesn't mean personally that Joseph himself carried it. Joseph was a very wealthy man. He had a number of servants. He had some other people with him. He wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in a rock, and he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. It wasn't the very same sepulcher. It's actually a different Greek word if you look at the notes in Bullinger's Companion Bible. But they were near, near what is today the garden tomb. And there may have been, it says, the tomb. There may have been another tomb right nearby. Now, the next day that followed the day of the preparation, believe it or not, the next day that followed the day of the preparation was not the weekly Sabbath. And this was not on a Friday. This was the day of the feast. The next day that followed the day of the preparation. The preparation day was on a Wednesday because the feast day was on the 15th of Nisan, which was our Thursday, and the preparation day was on the Wednesday preceding it. The chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher may be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. And to this day, of course, that theory persists. 
that the disciples stole the body away, or that Jesus was merely in a faint, or that he faked the entire thing, or that none of it happened at all, or that the Romans stole the body away. There's a very interesting article in Halley's Bible Handbook in relation to these scriptures in the Gospels about the death, burial, and Christ, of uh, resurrection of Christ, and he goes through all of those scenarios. So the last error shall be worse than the first. And Pilate said unto them, You have a watch, go your way, and make it sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Chapter 28, verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. Now it's true that sunset to sunset is one day. The evening and the morning were the first yawn, and it was the same then. So actually, the first day of the week, you can say, if you want to argue that point, began at the previous sunset. But it was way early in the wee hours. It probably was like 4.30, 5 o'clock. Somebody could argue 5.30. As it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake. It may have happened while they were en route, because some of the other gospel accounts don't mention it. But that great earthquake was the second great earthquake that had occurred within a very short period of time three days and three nights, to be exact, because at the instant that Christ died, there was a massive earthquake, and the veil in the temple was ripped in two, and the buildings were moving around, and the sarcophagi in several of the cemeteries were disturbed and, as it were, cast up out of the ground. Many of them in those days were buried in tombs that were above the ground with a stone lid on it, and they were opened up, and the Bible says that there were a number who were actually resurrected. They were known of their families, and they actually went back to their own homes, were received of them, and it was another great witness of the death of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Behold, it was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Eternal descended from heaven, and came and rolled back the stone from the door, and sat upon it. As Bullinger says, rolled back is in the past tense, had rolled back the stone. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men, so they fainted. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. That's past tense. Notice, as he said. And what did he say? Three days and three nights. He is risen. Not only did he say, I am going to rise from the dead, he is risen as he said, in the manner that he said. Come and see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goes before you into Galilee, and there you shall see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word. Let's now go to Mark's example, Mark's illustration of the same thing in Mark 15, beginning in verse 42. Now when even was come, because it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, and you'll find that phrase in Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, number 4315, and it's prosabaton. And if you look up the word in Strong, sabaton and prosabaton being quite a dif distance apart, one is merely a prefix. But the word sabaton, I'll tell you what Strong says is, quote, the Sabbath, or day of weekly repose from secular avocations, also the observance of the institution itself, or the interval between two Sabbaths, likewise the plural 
in all the above applications. Shabbath in the Hebrew, sabbaton in the Greek, and sabbaton can mean Sabbaths as well as Sabbath. Likewise, quote from Strong's, the plural in all the above applications. So it can be used in the plural. Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead. Calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And he brought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a sepulcher which was hewn out of a rock and rolled a stone under the door of the sepulcher. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph beheld where he was laid. Save further comment till we get to Luke's account because you keep adding information as you go along here. And when the Sabbath was passed, different word than verse 42. This is number 4521. Not pro sabbaton, but sabbaton. Mary Magdalene, the Mary the mother of James and Salome, had brought sweet spices, James the little or James the less, and this is the Mary, the wife of Zebedee, brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, Who shall roll away the stone from the door at the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw the stone was rolled away. For it was very great, probably in connection with the earthquake, although it says that the angel rolled it away. Maybe some of you in this room have been to the garden tomb. Maybe you have been to see Golgotha, and you know that the garden tomb is just barely around and below it. And there was need for haste, and it says a little later on, the tomb, or the sepulcher, was close by. You know, the tradition says that way over in the old city of Jerusalem, at the so-called church of the Holy Sepulcher, where you go in, and then underneath the church, you burrow down into the grotto under the ground. And because the current sidewalks in the old city are approximately 15 feet above where the sidewalks and streets were during Jesus' day, which you can plainly see at the Damascus Gate. You go through a gate, you look right down there, there's a top of another ancient old gate that they've excavated down just so far. And when you walk the streets of the old city of Jerusalem, you're not walking, even though they have the signs of the Via Dolorosa or the Way of the Cross where allegedly he fell so many times, and you go along it and people are crossing themselves and they think it's a great tourist attraction to do that. This is where Jesus walked. Well, it isn't at all. It's about 15 feet above, and it was way down below that that these events took place. When the Sabbath was passed, verse 16, they came very early in the morning. And verse 5, entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he said unto them, Be not afraid or affrighted. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him, and then go and tell the disciples. And there again it says that they fled from it because, or from him because they were afraid. Now turn to Luke 23 in verse 44. Luke 23:44. And it was about the sixth hour, they counted from 6 a.m. in the morning, and the sixth hour makes it noon, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And I put all these events together from the harmonies of the Gospels and from Bullinger's and from the Bible and all the other sources, the historical sources, but mostly, of course, just from the Gospels in the book that 
I wrote many years ago called The Real Jesus, and also another novelization of the account of the Apostles with Christ, which is called Peter's Story, as some few of you may have read, most probably have not. There was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, which would have been 3 p.m. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost, or he expired, or exhaled, breathed out his last. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, as you can imagine, that kind of a sign, pitch black for three hours, which was so strange that they must have lit candles and lamps all over the city. Then a great rumbling earthquake, and the veil in the temple, and people probably running around and talking about that. And because of these great, tremendous events, he knew that something here was supernatural, and that this was something that convinced him that what the Jews had done, even though he was a Roman soldier and in charge of a group who was there and later on was interrogated by Pilate, he was just shocked. And he said, surely this was a righteous man. He glorified God. He wondered whether he was the Son of God, as some say. And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. That means that an awful lot of people were shook up and upset and were really going through a tremendous, tremendous uh, emotional experience at that time. And all his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. Behold, it was a man named Joseph, a counselor. He was a good man and a just. Again, Joseph of Arimathea. The same had not consented the council indeed of that. He was of Arimathea, seat of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus, and he took it down and wrapped it in linens, we've read already, laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never before a man was laid. And that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew on. Now these events took place just after three o'clock. The Sabbath would be there by about six o'clock, so they had approximately three hours. The women also, which came with him from Galilee, followed after and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And as the marginal reference in Bullinger says, that these would have had to have been bought, or at least the uh, substances that they used, and then probably with mortar and pestle and various oils and other substances, they would actually have to work. Some of it were actually aromatic wood shavings, as it states in the Bible dictionaries and so on, and some of it was like a, an ointment or a balm or a lotion of some kind. And rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. Believe it or not, these events, verses 56, return, prepared spices and ointments. That preparation of the spices and ointments took place a day later on Friday. They probably weren't able to go out and purchase them until that daylight part of that Friday. And they worked many hours during the day, rested on the weekly Sabbath, according to the commandment, and then the next early wee dawn hours started on their journey toward the sepulcher. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them, and they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. The other accounts talk of how Peter and John came there and that John hesitated and hung back, and Peter ran in and came back out and said, He is not here, because of what the women had told them. 
And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, that is, the men said unto the women, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again. Now, in John the 19th chapter, you finally get a great deal of this all put together so that you really understand it in the proper context. John 19 and verse 31. It's at the moment, as it says, Jesus said, It is finished. He bowed his head and expired or exhaled or breathed his last, as the old King James says, gave up the ghost. And that means to exhale. Expire, you know, means to... The word spire is from spirit, and it has to do with the Greek word pneuma, which means wind or breath. To exhale and expire are the same thing. And the word spirit or pneuma in the Greek is used as wind and breath and air and so on. You'll recognize it in pneumatic and pneumonia. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day. Now, all of the commentaries know, or should know, and certainly Bullinger's companion Bible does, that a high day Sabbath is not one of the 52 Sabbaths. It is an high day Sabbath or an annual Sabbath. What was this preparation when Joseph of Arimathea had only three hours to hurry to get the body all in the sense that the word balm, embalm, does not mean what it does to you and I today in a funeral parlor. It had to do with the application of ointments and spices on the exterior of the body, which was balm. And that's all it really means. And Joseph of Arimathea and those that helped him took almost a hundred pounds, as you read. Several of them, no doubt, required to carry it. And they did prepare the body, and they carefully wrapped it. And it wasn't in a shroud like an envelope either. It was wrapped. And there were several different wrappings that were left there, and the napkin that was on the face laid on the tomb when they came in to see it. And it was not like the Shroud of Turin at all, as the, if you want to believe the Bible instead of Catholic tradition. But, of course, that's a choice. So, because the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, they besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers break the legs of the first, and the other, which was crucified with him. This has led Bullinger and some others to think that there were actually five and not three, because then the other, which wouldn't have made sense to go to one, go past Jesus, go to the other, then come back to Jesus Christ. So he has been of the opinion and has certain historical things that he refers to. I don't think that that's essential. It's not something that is a piece of dogma we need to believe. But the tra tradition says that there were the three of them there, Christ in the center and one thief on each side. Bollinger takes issue with that and thinks that there were perhaps as many as five. And when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side. And if you look at that, it occurs only here. It is a Greek word which is nuso, N-U-S-S-O. And forthwith there came out blood and water. 
And then you read of Joseph Arimathea, verse 38, again, being a disciple, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus, and there came also Nicodemus, which at first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Some people have misread that verse and have begun to assume this took place at night when it's really referring to Nicodemus, who originally came to Jesus by night, as you read in John the third chapter, and they begin to mistakenly assume that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were doing all of this to prepare the body by night. They were not. Just read the verse plainly in the English language. They brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about an hundred pound weight. The pound at that time was only 12 ounces. So get your calculator and figure a hundred times 12 ounces, and it's a good little bit short of a hundred pounds the way we would measure it today, but nevertheless close. And they took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is, to bury. You see, it was not a shroud, but linen clothes, and it was wound, not merely enfolded. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. It is unmistakable when you go there, and I think it's almost apropos because of the pagan tradition associated with some of the so-called holy sites in the old city of Jerusalem and throughout the land that people call the Holy Land, which Christ says, and the Bible says in the 11th chapter of the book of Revelation, is Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. God does not look at Jerusalem today. It is a horrible, horrible place in his sight today. It will be beautiful once again when Christ stands on Mount Zion and a great earthquake opens that whole area up and a great artesian well will flow in both directions, as it says in the last chapters of Ezekiel and says in, in Zechariah 14. But for today, this idea of going to holy places and feeling all goose pimply when you go down into dungeons and grottos and thinking that something happened here that will somehow uh, rub off on you and that you are a better person, a better Christian, you're closer to God for having been there. That is nonsense. That is not what God wants us to do. But when you go there, uh, perhaps it is apropos, I started to say, that here is Golgotha, just as plainly these limestone rocks with the deep pits in them that look just like a skull. I have taken pictures of it and stood on a parapet, and right beneath it was the smelliest, busiest, most raucous, noisy old Arab bus station. And I had come from the garden tomb and walk along a pathway, come out to a parapet and stand there and hear all these buses going and coming and everything, and an old building with kind of an overhanging parapet over it. And right beyond it there, nobody paying any attention to it, not a pilgrim or a Catholic or anybody else in sight, is this limestone outcropping that is Golgotha. Now, most of the Protestants, a lot of the Protestants, not all of them, I guess I can't say most of them, I don't think that means Methodists and Episcopalians, but they think of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre as being the, the appropriate place. But Golgotha is simply unmistakable because it was called the place of the skull, and it looks just like a skull to this day, just thousands of years of this limestone bluff. 
And right down, and it's quite high, you would have to walk down around it, and then right down below it is the garden tomb. And you can go there, and I have been there several times, done radio and television programs there. The first time that I was ever there, I was, I was very emotional, as, as you might understand, and went inside that tomb and was actually dictating a little bit of a radio program and describing what I was seeing from inside the garden tomb. The sepulcher was nigh at hand, so there was time for them to do all of those things and to do it on the preparation day, which was a Wednesday, before the annual holy day, which was the 15th of Nisan, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the first day of Unleavened Bread, which was a Thursday. And then to go out, the women went out on a Friday, which was another preparation day before the weekly Sabbath, made and prepared their spices, rested and then through the Sabbath day rested, and then that night, early in the morning, toward the first day of the week, they went to the sepulcher. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and saw the stone taken away from the sepulcher. She ran and went to Simon Peter. And to the other disciple, John is always uh, self-effacing, apparently, and often referred to himself that way, whom Jesus loved, and said unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they both ran together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then came Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and saw the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, no mention at all of anything called a shroud, but wrapped together in a place by itself. And then went in that other disciple, John, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. He had told them. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. And they didn't know where they could find that reference in the scripture, the Old Testament of the Bible. Then it goes on to talk about Mary standing there weeping, stooped down and looked into the sepulcher and the two angels, which we've read before. I want to turn now to Bullinger's Appendix 156. You also ought to read his Appendix 144, which goes into the entire statement about three days and three nights. And here in Bullinger's Appendix 156 on page 180 of Dr. Bullinger's Companion Bible, that Sabbath and the high day of John 1931 was the Holy Convocation, the first day of the feast, which quite overshadowed the ordinary weekly Sabbath. It was called by the Jews Yom Tov, which is good day. And this is the greeting on that day throughout Jewry down to the present time. This great Sabbath, having been mistaken from the earliest times for the weekly Sabbath, has led to all the confusion. This has naturally caused the further difficulty as to the Lord's statement that even as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, Matthew 12:40. Now, while it is quite correct to speak according to Hebrew idiom of three days and three years, while they are only parts of three days or three years, yet that idiom does not apply in a case like this where three nights are mentioned in addition to three days. It will be noted that the Lord not only definitely states this, but repeats the full phraseology so that we may not mistake it. See the subject fully discussed in 
Appendix 144. We have therefore the following facts furnished for our sure guidance. 1. The high day of John 1931 was the first day of the feast. And that has to be the 15th of Nisan, the first day of the Days of Unleavened Bread. And since Christ was buried late on the sunset, toward the beginning of sunset, just before it, on the previous afternoon, that had to be a Wednesday. The Bible says that he was to be cut off in the midst of the week. You look at all of the scholarly works, the Encyclopedia Biblica, and that is one of the ultra-liberal, higher-critic uh, type of books, and all the others, and I tell you that if you were playing blind man's buff, you would have to make a mistake eventually that they have never made. The dates that you will find in all these scholarly treatises for all these events that took place involving the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ are 29 A.D., 30 A.D., 32 A.D., or 33 A.D. Not a one of them even by accident, has ever made the mistake of saying it might have been 31 A.D., because 31 is the only day on the Jewish calendar where the Feast of Unleavened Bread was on a Thursday. And they will not make that mistake, because that will absolutely place the crucifixion of Christ on a Wednesday and the burial on a Wednesday afternoon. As I say, if you were blind and you had those years there and you were staggering around playing a game, somebody would have to make the mistake sooner or later of th saying that it might have occurred in 31 A.D. But because 31 A.D. and going back through the calendar, and it is absolutely inexorable, it is there, you can determine when the days, the holy days fell in those years, and that is the only one that actually fits all the biblical accounts. And they will not do it because of the Good Friday, Easter, sunrise, Sunday morning tradition. One, the high day of John 1931 was the first day of the feast. Two, the first day of the feast was on the 15th day of Nisan. Absolutely. Out of the 12th chapter of Exodus and all the law and the Torah. Three, the 15th day of Nisan commenced at sunset on what we should call the 14th. Of course, everybody knows that. Number four, six days before the Passover, as you read in John 12:1, takes us back to the ninth day of Nisan. Five, after two days is the Passover, that you read in Matthew 26:2 and Mark 14:1, takes us to the 13th day of Nisan. Six, the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection, meaning the day as it began to dawn toward, but it was already into the wee hours, so it was technically Saturday night or right at sunset. We don't know if it was at the exact moment of sunset, whether it was a few days, I'm sorry, a few minutes or an hour or two before sunset. He may be in error with that. But the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection, Matthew 28, 1, and so on, was from our Saturday sunset to our Sunday sunset. This fixes the day of the week, just as the above fixed the days of the month. Four, seven, reckoning back from this, three days and three nights, Matthew 12:40, which we started out with, we arrive at the day of the burial, which must have been before sunset on the 14th of Nisan, in other words, before our Wednesday sunset. The eighth point, this makes the sixth day before the Passover, the ninth day of Nisan, to be our Thursday sunset to Friday sunset. Therefore, Wednesday, 
nice on the 14th. Commencing on the Tuesday at sunset was the preparation day on which the crucifixion took place. For all four Gospels definitely say that this was the day on which the Lord was buried, that is, before our Wednesday sunset, because it was the preparation day, and the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, quote, for that Sabbath was an high day, and therefore not the ordinary seventh day or the weekly Sabbath. Do you realize then that the supper that Jesus had, which Bullinger absolutely convincingly proves, was not the eating of the paschal lamb, because the paschal lamb was not slain until the moment Jesus died. Traditionally, for all of my lifetime, and in the Church of God before I was born, the Church has always called it the Passover, and we have not changed that. But technically, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. He is our Passover. He is the Passover. What Christ instituted was and is uniquely a New Testament observance, which is called the Lord's Supper, and that's what it was. And the Apostle Paul says that he was reminding the Corinthians that he had delivered unto them how that in the night in which he was betrayed, Christ took bread and the wine and passed it among them. And so the symbols of his shed blood and his broken body were given on the very beginning part of the 14th. It was later that night he was betrayed, all through that night that he was taken back and forth to Caiaphas and out to the Gabbatha and before Pilate and tortured and beaten. And then the following day that he was on the stake after dragging along the streets that morning and all those hours in agony until he died at approximately 3 p.m. in the afternoon, Joseph of Arimathea showed up. They took the body, prepared it, carefully laid it away, sealed the stone and went away and then, in a matter of a short period of time, began the 15th or the feast. So you see, I think that the typology is inescapable. I think that because he is our Passover, that he was symbolized or typified by the Paschal Lamb, that at the moment that Jesus Christ died is the moment when the high priest sacrificed the first lamb on that Passover. There are those who insist that we should observe the Lord's Supper at the moment when the Jews ate the feast, when even the Apostle Paul says it was in the night in which Christ was betrayed. We have always observed it that way my entire lifetime as a little boy. I remember when my parents observed the annual Holy Days and the Passover by themselves. I think that perhaps once my father was with the Church of God's seventh day, and some few of them began at least observing the Passover. Maybe they were observing it before that time. My memory is a little fuzzy when I'm one, two, or three years of age. But I know that as far back as I can remember in my memory of my own mind, that they were observing the Lord's Supper, and the people in the Church of God's seventh day referred to it as often as the Lord's Supper, as often as not, rather than as the Passover. So I think this will help clear up some of those concepts, and if there are any questions remaining, I would urge you to dig out your copy of the Passover booklet and read through it again. And if you don't have a Halley's Bible, uh, I should say a Bollinger's Companion Bible, I know that uh, there are cloth-bound versions that aren't as expensive as this leather-bound. I've had this rebound once because I've uh, used it a great deal, so I know they're somewhat expensive. But it is a very good study help, and I would certainly encourage you to do so.
I hope that all of us have a very memorable Lord's Supper this year.